Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And today on the Coffeehouse Classical, we're once again taking a sojourn to Russia. We have been to Russia before to visit composers such as Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff. However, today Borodin falls in a different stylistic era than those two, more in line with Miley Balakarev, who we've also profiled in a past episode. Alexander Borodin is, of course, a member of the mighty Russian Five, a group of composers and music lovers who advocated for a Russian school of music that was not so tightly influenced by the Western European sound that is so apparent in Tchaikovsky's music, for example. As a child, Borodin was full of curiosity and was allowed to learn. Born in 1833, he was actually the illegitimate child of a Georgian prince. So sadly, his heritage did not allow him any fancy formal education as a child, but he received lessons from his mother, members of her extended family, and her friend circle. And it would seem that everyone Borden didn't came in contact with could be viewed as someone to learn something from. It's like the world was his teacher. Ooh. Part of his learning endeavors were, of course, music. However, the young Borodin also had a knack for scientific flair. Literally, he enjoyed making fireworks as a hobby. Wow, a man of many talents. And it seems that Borodin could have chosen to study any subject. However, the career he initially pursued was medicine. That's right. He attended the Medical Surgical Academy in St. Petersburg to become a doctor. Interestingly, while there, he also studied chemistry. In 1855, upon his graduation, Borodin was assigned to serve in a Russian military hospital. But for an unknown reason, Borodin grew tired of his medical work at the hospital. At this time of his life, what he really wanted to do was chemistry. And also music. Because Borodin had always been working on music in the background of his scientific studies. So in 1862, he started taking lessons with Miley Berlakarev. This composition hobby work eventually produced Borden's Symphony No. 1, which premiered in 1869. That's quite an output for a hobby. <laughs> yeah, it was seven years of working on a symphony, and Borden is quoted as saying that he would usually only compose when he was feeling ill and was thus unable to go in to teach lectures or go to the lab. Apparently, his music friends would, quote, wish him not health, but sickness. <laughs> So as a prominent figure in both the scientific and musical realms, Borodin got to hang out with some pretty cool people. Of course, his musical friends were the other members of the Russian Five, most of whom also had careers outside of music. Cesar Kui was an engineer, Rimsky-Korsakov was a naval officer, Mussorgsky was in the army, and Balakarev himself was a mathematician. For a time, Borodin worked in the laboratory of Emil Erlenmeyer, a name that will be known to anyone who's taken any sort of science laboratory class. And for anyone who's ever been up against a problem that could only be solved with the formation of a carbon-carbon bond, 
you can thank Borodin for the discovery of the Aldol reaction, which does just that. Now, as a big-shot chemist, it was only natural that Borodin would take on a position at a university, so he returned to his alma mater at the Medical Surgical Academy and served as their chemistry chair from 1862 to his death. Not only was Borden on the forefront of chemistry and music, but also social change. As a chairperson at the university, he had a good deal of input in how the university was actually run. Starting in 1872, the university started offering medical courses for women, which was a change that was advocated for by Borden. As you can see, Alexander Borden was a very busy guy. As such, his musical output was not extensive, but what he did compose was well-loved. For years, he had been working on and perfecting his operatic masterpiece, Prince Igor. But unfortunately, he never actually finished it. It seems that his work had actually stretched him too thin, and unfortunately, while attending a ball, he suffered a heart attack that led to his death. So, his musical friends, Rimsky-Korsakov and Alexander Glazunov, took it upon themselves to complete the masterpiece, which we will be taking a look at today. So now on to the Prince Igor Overture. As we mentioned, the Mighty Five believed firmly in a Russian school of music. And interestingly, this Russian school was modeled after the European traditions with strong nationalism. So although they sought a distinctly Russian sound, they inevitably copied the format that was seen in the rest of Europe. And this included their opera compositions. At this time in Western Europe, we are seeing composers such as Wagner writing his epic Germanic historical fantasies, and a bit later we also see Puccini writing about the Italian lifestyle. It was only appropriate, then, that the Russian Five should write Russian opera about Russian themes. Such was the mentality taken by Borodin when he set out to write his operatic epic Prince Igor. The story takes place in the 12th century of Russia. Listeners can immediately imagine the medieval setting with drafty castles, serfs toiling over the cold Russian soil, and battles for land raging all around. Prince Igor is about to set off on a campaign against the Polovetsians, a group of Turkish nomads controlling southern Russia at the time. Just before Igor sets off, there is a solar eclipse which is viewed as a bad omen. Nonetheless, Igor leaves to conquer the south. In Act 1, he is immediately captured by the enemy. As you can expect, the rest of the opera then is basically people singing about how sorry they feel for what has happened, and if only they could have stopped it to begin with. But don't despair. Unbeknownst to his family back home, Igor escapes imprisonment and returns home to much celebration, apologizing for having left in the first place. As we mentioned, Borodin didn't actually finish this opera while he was alive, but rather it was finished by his cohorts in his musical circle. You'd think that he would have at least finished the overture since it's the first thing you hear in the opera, but actually it was quite unfinished when he died. And this actually makes sense because most overtures are composed of, quote, best of music from the show, so it would have been hard to write the overture before the rest of the musical themes had really been laid out. It was mostly Alexander Glazunov who worked on completing the overture. Apparently, he had heard Borodin play it on the piano many times and knew the general plans he had for it. 
So the structure of the overture we hear today is definitely Borodin's creation. However, much of the orchestration is thanks to Glazunov. The overture starts out with a somber ballad that conjures the trepidation everyone was feeling about Igor going off to battle. But the battle calls Igor away nonetheless, and he sets off to do his princely duty. snippets of music from the opera, such as themes from the famous Polovetsian dances scene. The Polovetsian dances themselves were written to be an opportunity for a ballet to be put into the middle of the opera, not really moving the plot forward at all, and as such, that group of dances is actually performed as a standalone piece. And this is a perfect example of how, although the Mighty Five wanted a distinctly Russian school of music, they still did borrow some influences from Western traditions, in particular, in this case, such as Wagner's ideals of a Gesamtkunstwerk, or total artistic work, integrating different forms of theater, ballet, opera, acting into an all-encompassing piece of musical art. And since Russia has been known for their excellent ballet for centuries, Borodin, of course, would have wanted to feature these excellent dancers in his excellent operatic work. As you can hear in the Polovitsian themes in the overture, it's first heard in the clarinet. The sound of the Polovitsian music was slightly Middle Eastern, folksy, and improvisatory. And therefore, the meter is a tad skewed, but not disturbingly so. And speaking of skewed time, Borden really leans into mixing rhythmic motifs. He introduced a theme in the French horn that features quarter note triplets. And under that theme, he's had the string section constantly playing quarter note triplets even when the horn had just straight quarter notes. However, it was written very much in the background, so that rhythm wasn't so obtrusive. But then the strings take over the melody in the second strain. Those quarter note triplets that were very much in the background are now taken up by the woodwinds, who bring in a much more piercing sound. The dichotomy between two and three is really brought out. Overall, even though the rhythms do not line up, the effect it produces is very peaceful, almost like the music is slower or gentler than it really is. 
And one more interesting treatment of this gentle theme written near the end of the overture is to put the Polovetsian theme in the background rather than the flowing triplets. You can hear the woodwinds playing the slow theme, but then listen carefully under that for the French horn doing some horn gymnastics to play the fast Polovetsian dance before the strings overtake everything. Speaking of gymnastics, the horn isn't the only instrument who got stuck playing this tough lick. When the violins or woodwinds play the Polovitzian theme, it sounds natural, because instruments like that are used to playing fast and prominent riffs. Now, it's not unheard of for the French horn to take up a passage like this, but it is still less likely. What is quite surprising, then, is when the bass section is given a chance to play the Polovitzian theme. You almost never hear bass voices carrying the melody, and especially not such a fast one. But the creative combined genius of Borodin and Glazunov made it happen here. It's really hard to write such a line as this for lower instruments just because it's harder to get the low sound to carry to the audience and really be able to hear all the individual notes, rather than just musical mush. This pioneering compositional technique of giving low voices the melody in such a prominent and standout way is now a hallmark of Russian compositional technique. A very pervasive motif throughout the overture is different versions of an upward leap. We hear one version of it near the beginning of the overture with dramatic leaps of a fourth. We then hear a more gentle version with just leaps of a third. we hear leaps that result in chord inversions that range from leaps of seconds to sixths that sound more insistent and desperate. Near the end of the overture, we've come full circle now, and the leaps of fourths are back in force. enjoyed this jaunty piece written by the professional amateur Alexander Borodin. He was indeed a man of many talents, and the Prince Igor Overture really brings that to the fore. So if you have enjoyed listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, please consider spreading the word to a similarly interested friend or family member. You can drop us a line at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. 
for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Prince Igor Overture was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>